E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Victoria James on the show of Drink Pink, a celebration of Rosé, a new book that she has co-authored. Hello, how are you? I am great. How are you? Very nice to see you. And you as well, sir. So where'd you grow up? So I was born in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of D.C., then moved to Northern Virginia, and then New Jersey, and then New York. Yeah, we moved around a lot. People used to joke that my family, that they were gypsies. My dad... Did you have a wagon? A wagon. We did actually have a little red wagon, but not good for travel. Any um, cool dancing? That was mostly my brother. He had the moves, for sure. The chicken dance, I think, was big in the 90s. So It was, yeah. Roger Rabbit. of that. <laughs> but um, we all played instruments, so it was like a traveling band show. No, so we moved around a lot, and we also spent some time overseas. Whereabouts? In Romania. So you really, truly were a gypsy then. Yes. Isn't that where gypsies come that from? That is where gypsies come from. But, you know, once I was there, I realized that, wow, I am definitely not a gypsy. These people are totally misinformed. But I don't, I don't think people really appreciated that. Anyway, then Thailand, which was completely different, much warmer, and then back to the East Coast, to New York. What brought the family back to New York? I mean, what was going on that all this happened? My parents split when I was younger, and it was sort of like this custody battle, if you will. And then eventually we settled with my dad, uh, and that brought us to New York. When was the first restaurant experience? My first restaurant experience was when I was 13. Uh, we we're not only moving all around, but we had very little money. So, of course, as a kid, there are things you want. And if, when your parents don't have money to give you, you're like, man, gotta start making a living. <laughs> so, well, actually, prior to this, I had um, a very successful pet sitting business in the neighborhood. And uh, then I decided to go legal. And I actually was looking forward to my 13th birthday because that's when you can legally work in restaurants. So... I got a job as a diner waitress, and that was just the beginning of it all, if you will. I started working in the smoking section because that's where all the cool kids hung out and the cool old people also. So I would go there after school around 4 p.m. and then work till around 2 a.m. or on the weekends do like the graveyard shift, 6 p.m. to 8 a.m., which is a lot of fun, especially if you're in middle school. So I bopped around to a few different diners and um, really fell in love with the restaurant diner community. Are we talking about Manhattan diner community or Queens? or? This started in New Jersey at a small diner underneath railroad tracks, literally. <laughs> and then eventually to diners in New York uh, on the Upper West Side. Did you find that to be very different? Quite. But there was still always an underlying similarity. You know, I had a lot of diner waitress friends, and they all seemed to be named Flo. I don't know if that was uh, just terminology. You got to go with it. You got to go with the flow. Exactly. Um, you know, so for me, that was a lot of fun making these friends that were older. And while other kids my age would be shopping at the mall, I would go pantyhose shopping with them at, you know, the corner store. And uh, it was always difficult for me to get along with my peers uh, because I might not have the cool jeans or there were holes in my sneakers and that sort of thing. But, you know, older people just didn't seem to care. You know, I was Victoria and and that's that. So did you ever practice having a gravelly voice? 
The dino waitress. Did you ever practice to get along, to seem like one of the gang? (laughs) Absolutely. I think that when you're around different groups of people, your voice actually changes, especially when you're a teenager and your voice is changing in general, trying to always fit in. So yeah, so I would work these graveyard shifts or after school shifts and really fall in love with first people that came in, which were the early bird special people. And, uh, you know, for under $20, you can get meatloaf and four sides and unlimited bread. And we would get a lot of people that would come in for these specials and the whole restaurant would be packed. And it was great to be able to make that group of people happy just by offering like super hot soup that almost could scald you and extra bread rolls. Uh, Also dealing with like the drunk clientele uh, late night. You're talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't start drinking at 13, although a lot of people at the diner, you know, drank. There was always a flask going around. <laughs> Wine 30. like that Wine kind of thing. 30, exactly. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it was kind of cool to be able to learn uh, at a young age how to deal with different groups of people and how to, to be hospitable. Were your grandparents around in your life? Not at that age. They died when I was pretty young. But um, my grandmother on my dad's side raised me for a bit. Um, and she was awesome. So <laughs> dealing with those older people um, can really be a pleasure. To me, those two things are related. The fact that you've been sought out some older people. You know, people forget how boring people their own age can be, especially when I was 13. I was like, man, I mean, I'm pretty boring. I've only seen 13 years of life. <laughs> These people are 60. They've been all over the world. They've had six husbands. I'm like, these stories are great. It was really inspiring. And, you know, I started writing a lot. I even wrote like a poetry anthology that I submitted to the Dodge Poetry Festival, just about all these characters that you find, which not so much in high school. I mean, what, you have the cheerleaders, the jocks, they're all pretty much the same. I usually find diner um, and restaurant people in general, like really funny, dark humor. Right. It's always very quippy. Um, I feel like they have to be, you know, it's kind of like the strongest survive. You have 30 seconds of table time and that's, that's your living, your tips. So if you're not at least wildly sarcastic or quippy, I think you don't really survive in that environment. Upper West Side, how was that? More family oriented. So you would have uh, lots of strollers and lots of crayons and pancakes. Um, but, you know, you still would get late night, the uh, drunk people. Always. But I used to find, before I started drinking, drunk people, like, completely fascinating. A little dangerous, but completely (laughs) fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when I was so young and, you know, you had a sip of beer here and there, but you weren't really drinking. So, to be exposed to these people was just, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, you know, they seemed so cool and they reeked of alcohol and they were doing crazy things. And, you know, I was, you know, I was nervous if, for example... My hair didn't look great that day, but they didn't care. They were, I mean, it seemed like such a cool, fascinating world. And at what point did your sister come along in your life? So my younger sister, Laura, was, uh, we're seven years apart. So I was kind of like a mother figure to her. Uh, I don't know if she would like to hear that <laughs> because she, she considers herself very fiercely independent as well. But I, I feel as if I've always kind of looked out for her. So yeah. Eventually, you moved into serving drinks yourself, right? After high school, I graduated to being a bartender simply because... You you went to a bartending high school. (laughs) No, that would have been been much more lucrative, I think, than (laughs) the normal GED. Um, No, I just, you know, I need more money. I was paying for college by myself, and I was going to Fordham University, which is incredibly expensive, (laughs) even with scholarships. So uh, I print out 100 resumes and hand them out around Manhattan. And eventually I had 10 to 20 people call me back. And one of them really stuck out. It was a small family place on Restaurant Row. And they said, you know, we don't need a server, which was the position I originally applied for, but we do need a bartender. Can you bartend? And I said, sure, great. Yes, I can. And um learned very quickly how to bartend. But luckily, it wasn't, you know, super mixology. It was Restaurant Row, the theater district. So as long as you knew how to make a Cosmo or Martini and you were nice to people, um, 
you were okay. I usually found like finding the bottles was the big hurdle at the beginning. Yes. They would ask me, hey, go grab a bottle of J&B. And I'm like, fuck, what's J&B? Okay, let me just go downstairs. And luckily, J&B is written in large letters on the bottle, so that helps. But um, really, wine is when that started getting complicated because the owner would say, hey, run downstairs and get me a bottle of Amarone. And I was like, okay, how is that spelled? I've never heard that word before. I didn't grow up in a wine drinking family. Um, And so I would constantly fumble for bottles, bring the wrong bottles to tables. And eventually he was like, okay, you need to learn something about wine. And um, that's, I guess, where wine education came in. How did that happen? Well, at the time, I was I was still quite young. It was 1920, and um, I had read about cocktails and beer uh, just with wine for dummies and, and those sort of simple books that you could buy at the store just to be able to bartend. But wine was still something that was very mysterious to me. So I sought out some wine courses in New York, and someone recommended, I think, the American Sommelier Association. So... I started off taking their introduction course there and immediately was hooked. So from there, I tried to pursue a job where I was more focused on wine and where it was more essential to the restaurant. And why do you think you did that? Well, at the time, I was was really falling in love with wine, and I had signed up to take another course with the American Sommelier Association, and I decided to take a semester off school. It was just getting too expensive, and I couldn't pay for wine classes at the same time as college. So I chose. Um, Of course, everyone in my family freaked out, but hey, at the end of the day, if you're not paying for it, it's uh, my decision. So they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, you'll go back just one semester off. And, you know, I never did go back. So, you know, I was really falling in love with wine, and I asked um, the president, Andrew Bell, of the ASA, to recommend a place for me where I can uh, be exposed to wine. And so he recommended Harry's at Hanover Square. Why do you think he did that? He spent a good bit of time there. Um, It was definitely a haunt for a lot of winos. But in addition to that, it was definitely a good starting point. I was not ready to be a sommelier by any means. Uh, It was a place where they needed a bartender, but the seller also needed organization. So my job was I would go in Wednesday through Saturday 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. and work lunch, dinner, and late night in the back bar at Harry's at Hanover Square. And when I wasn't bartending on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, my job was to reorganize the cellar. So it was kind of the perfect job because it was, I had the qualifications slightly (laughs) of being a bartender, but I was also exposed to this incredible wine cellar. I mean, that seems like a big jump. It was definitely, I mean, I think throughout my very short career in the wine and restaurant industry, I've always made huge jumps. Uh, And sometimes in retrospect, maybe it was foolish, but it seems as if it's worked out. I have definitely been under severely underqualified for a lot of these jobs. But um, luckily, uh, everyone has been very helpful and kind. So if someone found themselves in the same position, like thinking Mm -hmm. about doing that or trying to cope with doing that, what would you say? Well, I guess it's different for every person. Um, I kind of would just swallow my fear and um, maybe cry in private, but, uh, you know, do my best. And I think that 90% of it is showing up and being interested and taking notes and really trying and the further I go in this industry, I realize how often uh, people give up and don't try. So, you know, if you do that, that's, uh, that's most of it. Sounds like sound advice to me. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, no, but Harry's uh, was a great place to break into the wine industry. I was taking courses at the time. So being able to study all of these wines and then also physically see them was, I mean, invaluable. Um, what was Harry like? Harry Pulakakos was a gem, is a gem. Just a little backstory. Um, he started out, uh, he came here, I think, in 1956 from Greece or from Sparta. Very different, apparently. <laughs> and um, he had an uncle that was here, I believe, and he started out in an ice cream parlor and then eventually found his way to Delmonico's, right next to the current Harry's at Hanover Square. 
he moved up to a managerial role there and was and was buying the wine. So he would buy Burgundy and Bordeaux for whatever it was, 10 bucks a case kind of thing, crazy prices. And then eventually in, I think, 72, opened up Harry's, his own restaurant next door. So, you know, he had this incredible knowledge of Burgundy, Bordeaux, um, California, all the classics. So to be surrounded by that so young was really, I mean, I think a lot of sommeliers now, they kind of enter into these restaurants that are cool or new or hipster Brooklyn. Um, but to be surrounded by the classics was uh, really invaluable. And Harry was, I mean, he's awesome. He can tell you uh, any bottle that's on the list or that you find in the cellar. He can tell you when he bought it, for how much, how many bottles are left, how many bottles he personally drank. If he gave a bottle away to a friend, if he accidentally broke it, how many corked bottles he's had of that wine. I mean, his knowledge is insane. I remember one of the first bottles of wine we drank together. Uh, it was the La Mission Aubryon, uh 66. And I was kind of looking at the label and I had just learned about Firth Gross in Bordeaux. And of course, I'll never be able to drink these. I barely have $5 in my bank account. So to be able to see uh, the La Mission from Aubryon was just fascinating. I was like, wow, this must be amazing. And Harry was like, let's drink it. And I was like, cool, that's awesome. Uh, he taught me how to open it, which is incredibly difficult if you, you know, opening your first bottle of old wine. Um, so he just had this really generous spirit. And he, I think, bought it for $12 a bottle, maybe, if that, uh, you know, and right after it came out, probably in 68, 69. So, you know, he just, was incredibly, is incredibly generous, warm, kind, um, and very, very smart. Had you worked with Greeks in uh, the diner business? Oh, yeah. So, well, my father is actually, so my mother's Italian and my father's Greek. So I grew up in actually a big Greek family. Our last name, James, was changed when my grandfather arrived here in Ellis Island from Sakonikis, which is spelled with a T and means fighting bull. So, uh, you know, I grew up in this huge Greek family. Everyone was always fighting and punching each other and cousins were trying to kiss you. And <laughs> But when everyone sat down to dinner, everyone was friends again. And it was jovial. And, um, you know, in the diner as well, it was very much like that. I think one diner I worked at in New Jersey, uh, two Greek owners, brothers, during the shift once, uh, one of the gentlemen, Peter, stabbed his brother. <laughs> just they had a fight over something and probably a girl and then a few hours later um you know the wound was bandaged and they were sharing a plate of french fries <laughs> it was just the greeks are just you know they're very very intense people um which is great and i remember one thanksgiving i worked at harry's i was i was in the back bar as bartending and he sat down to thanksgiving dinner with his family it was probably like a 10 top 12 top his son Peter had just had a little boy, so the you know kids scrambling around. At one point, <laughs> Peter, Harry's son, gets in a fight with I think his cousin, or maybe it was Harry. They have a storm out. They walk out of the restaurant. Then a couple hours later, he comes back. They're crying. They've made up, and they have you know they resume dinner, <laughs> and it was like that often. But um, yeah, <laughs> it's funny how much food can be a bandage to emotions. And yeah, lots of food and wine as well, and I think that. Peter really took after his father in that he he really found wine to be a tool for hospitality. And when they when he reopened, so I think Harry he closed Harry's when his wife Adrian died. And when Peter reopened Harry's, it was really important to him to keep the wine cellar intact. And so when when I was there, that was the whole point was, oh, let's have this young girl help out sorting out, you know, this multi-million dollar crazy wine cellar which eventually I think that project was abandoned because I don't know if that cellar can ever be reorganized. You know, Harry knows where every single bottle is in the cellar. And so he would think it's so silly. He would come into the cellar and we're organizing everything by region. Or, and he's like, what are you talking about? I know where everything is. Why are you doing this? But, uh, you know, we're like, Harry, you're not going to be around forever. And no one else knows where the wine is except for you. But, you know, to this day... I think he's in his 90s and is still at Harry's six days a week. How long did you work there? I worked there for just under a year. 
Where'd you head to afterwards? I worked harvest in Sonoma and turned 21 and became a sommelier at Oriole on 42nd Street. At the time, I thought I was very ready to be a sommelier. I didn't see, you know, what was holding me back. I was 21, so I can legally be a sommelier now. What's, <laughs> it must be that easy, right? So I took uh, the intro course with the Court of Master Sommeliers and the Certified, and I had a shiny pin and, you know, a certificate. So I was like, this, this should be enough. Um, definitely was not. Uh, I was very unprepared, but luckily the beverage director at Oriole at the time, Justin Lorenz, is a really, a very nice guy. And I think he saw maybe potential in me or just the fact that I was willing to work 80 hours a week for very little pay, which is always a good thing. And so I started there as a sommelier at 21, which was in retrospect probably too early, but uh, really uh, a challenge but one that I think was invaluable in many ways. Sometimes I've learned more from the things that were that didn't work out than from the stuff that did. Yeah. Um, you know, the first few months was incredibly a culture shock in many ways. It was my first foray into fine dining. So, you know, I didn't even know who Charlie Palmer was. I'd grown up in restaurants, sure, but it was where Greeks were stabbing each other. It wasn't where you're doing open-handed service. And I was always good with people, especially older people and I knew how to make people happy, but I didn't know that you had to clear tables at the same time. I'm like, why would you do that? You look like robots. It looks ridiculous. But um, apparently it's important. And the wine list was crazy. I thought I knew a bit from Harry's, but I could tell you good vintages of older Bordeaux, but I didn't know the first thing about Colt Napa Cab or German Riesling. So it's definitely a steep learning curve. Uh, and you know, and the guests that came in too, um, everyone's dressed to the nines and I had a suit I got for 50 bucks at probably a thrift store. So it was really, it was, it was great that I was unprepared for it because it forced me to learn incredibly quickly. It sounds like it was a little intimidating at some level. Incredibly intimidating. Yeah. It was the going into the room, swallowing your fear and just, and just doing it. And luckily it was such a busy restaurant that at times you didn't have you didn't have an opportunity to be scared because it was so fast paced. So sometimes at the end of the day, you would be like, "Oh man, holy shit, <laughs> that was scary." But it's done now, and then you know, kind of look forward to tomorrow. Sometimes I find wine cellars are also kind of a safe place to momentarily have an emotion because <laughs> no one else is in there but you. Yeah, no, and the wine cellar is very much soundproof. So you can scream and you're like, oh my gosh, where is this vintage of Burgundy? I can't find it anywhere. And then go back to the table composed. <laughs> it turns out they didn't even order Burgundy. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a lot of those moments, it's cooler in the cellar. So you can stop perspiring like an animal for a second and breathe, which is always good. How long was that at the... Uh... The R-E-O. <laughs> the Oriole. Um, I was there for two years. You stuck it out for a little bit. Stuck it out. Yeah. I mean, that was it was definitely, that was the most challenging restaurant experience I've had to date. You know, it was an American chef, but the GM was French and the chef was British and everyone was, had their own opinions about things. And it was, it was a very tough place to work. Not an easy place. Um, so two years was definitely as much as I could give. And I also at one point stopped learning. So I had the opportunity to move onto the Alta Morea group. Risto had taught some classes with the American Sommelier Association. So I knew him from there and he said, hey, are you interested? We're opening up a new restaurant. And I thought, yeah, let's do it. So I started uh, at Ristorante Marini, which is the Upper East Side location, and opened that place with Richard Anderson and Jane Lopes. So we had a pretty cool sommelier team. And uh, we had a lot of high hopes for the restaurant in terms of the wine program. Unfortunately, after about six months there, we realized, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's the Upper East Side. And um, we were the new kids and we had some ideas that were a little, or the, the neighborhood thought was silly. Um, and we came to realize soon they were, it was silly. So they had an opening at the SOM team at Morea, Michael White's flagship restaurant. And so 
I took that position and not soon after, I think Jane Lopes as well went to 11 Madison Park and Richard Anderson moved to their new location, Vaucluse. So we kind of all left that property, but you know, we had to open a restaurant and uh, I'd never done that before. And I realized, you know, it's a lot of sleepless nights and broken backs and it's sort of like going to camp. You know, everyone becomes buddies and friends because you spend every waking moment together. You know, that in itself was a wonderful opportunity. I guess at the end of the day, the customers are either buying the wine or they're not. And they were not. <laughs> so. But I imagine by the time you made it to Maria, you were selling some wine. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I wanted to sell wine. And um, I think the mistake we made at Ristorante Marini was we weren't we weren't listening to our guests. And that's the first thing that matters. To be a good sommelier, I think you probably should just try and make people happy and not give them some geeky orange wine from some hipster in Italy. You should give them the Arnaise they want. So I haven't found that to be such a Richard Anderson signal. <laughs> no, Richard Anderson does not do that. I mean, I think it's more that people think Upper East Side, oh, they're wealthy people. They're going to want to buy expensive wine. And in fact, what they want is a simple plate of spaghetti and inexpensive wine that they've heard of. Right. I mean, I think there's a reason that the people are wealthy is because they don't spend, especially up there, old money. They don't spend their money frivolously, if you will. But downtown at Morea, lots of frivolous spending. <laughs> for, <laughs> well, it's not really downtown. But it's midtown. Well, from the Upper East Side, it was way downtown, let me just tell you. It seemed like the coolest place ever <laughs> in comparison. Morea is de definitely different. And you were slinging, I mean, $25,000 plus of wine a day. Some cool, some not, but definitely quantity. You kind of already alluded to this, but I kind of feel like you didn't necessarily do what most sommeliers do, which is sell the cool wine first. You've pretty much consistently done classics. And now this is probably the period of your career right now where you're selling most quote unquote cool wine. I think I have that luxury now. I think when you're just learning about wine, you shouldn't have that luxury um, or you shouldn't award it to yourself. You know, what's cool is fleeting and every day it changes. It's hard to know that when you're young though. <laughs> <laughs> like literally yeah. in the late 90s, I, you know, it wasn't so obvious that Colt Cab wasn't going to be popular. I just say haven't gone through it. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, but also moving to Morea, it was really my first foray into Italy because um, we had some classics like at Harry's, he had some older Sassicaia or something or Gaia, but, you know, he didn't have Quintarelli or, um, or such. So, you know, really learning about Italy there uh, was... Tons of crazy grapes, no rules. So for a young sommelier, it was, it was very cool, or at least I thought that was cool. And, uh, you know, the great thing about Marais is that you're constantly tasting and popping bottles. So, you know, I would recommend things that I wanted to try or haven't tried yet. But it seems like in the meantime, you've traveled a lot to Italy, no? My mom's side of the family is from the northwest in Piedmont, but all the way west of wine country in the mountains uh, near Saluzzo. So about a 45-minute drive west of Barolo. So, Where the other Pella Verga is. <laughs> the other Pella Verga. People often do not know that. I'm but a wine professional. <laughs> you are a wine professional. I think you could also, I mean, if anyone has expertise in Pella Verga, it, it might be you. I've had a Saluzzo in Pella Verga before. Oh, you have? Once. What were your um, thoughts? One time. Uh, meaty. Kind of yeah. meaty sausage -y, Kind of more like Croyatina than the Pella Verga that we think of. That's fair. Um, yeah, I think a lot of sommeliers know of like Verduna Pelaverga and Berlotto, but for the West too, and, and they blend it in. Um, my family makes a wine there that's Pelaverga, Barbera, and Qualiano. I've never had that grape. There's no reason you should. <laughs> but it's something that just has grown in, in their vineyards for, you know, centuries, and they just kind of blend it in, and it's, you know, it's table wine, so. What I found learning more about Italian wine that's very interesting to me is that a lot of times there are family groups, like the fact that Groven and Petit Rouge are related and they're also grown in the same place. I mean, it makes sense historically that one would be a parent of another and that they would be in the same location as somewhat inaccessible to the rest of the world. But it's kind of cool that mm -hmm. you have this constellation of grapes that are somewhat related. It's it adds a different flavor than the kind of new world approach of like, let's see what happens if we plant this year and then we're going to plant something else very different next to it and see if it, what happens with that. I mean, that's not taken away yeah. with that because you got to start somewhere. You got to see what's going to work. But you have these different grape varieties that have popped up over hundreds of years. Like, you know, Petit Rouge is probably like 400 years old and it's related to another grape variety that's 
little less old and it's related to this other one that's even older and there's a continuity there yeah no it's like it's like a time capsule i think Italy, too, is a great place to find that because there's so many corners of Italy that are still relatively unexplored. And you get these weird things like Qualiano and Pelaverga. And uh, there's no reason that these small rural villages should replant. And they just kind of keep using these grapes their family has been using for centuries. I can see your perspective of Italy, Italy, the Italy that you had a home in Mm -hmm. uh, being different than the Italy that you sold in 59th Street. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of being at Marais, you'd get these influences from Italy, but also Michael White and New York and just the international clientele. And, you know, we would sell a good bit of Burgundy, too, and a lot of French wine and American wine in general. So that is definitely, I think it's a good representation of New York being an international city. It does seem like you've been in mostly dining rooms populated by men who are uh, wealthy. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, But, you know, I think, um, I think not a criticism. No, not at all. No, I think it's been to my benefit in a lot of ways. I am very aware of who I am and I know I'm a young female sommelier and relatively easy to look at. And, you know, so I think it makes, uh, wine sales much, much easier in some ways, but also it can present its challenges. I think that having a cute young girl walk over to the table, it gets you in the door, but in order to stay there, you really have to back it up with some knowledge and you can't be just this silly frou-frou uh, chick with a ponytail. Well, I've never seen you wear your hair that way, so. <laughs> okay. I feel like you spend a lot of time thinking about your next move. I, I don't ever want to feel stagnant. And so I've constantly sought out other opportunities and I've been very fortunate in that they've been presented to me um, in a very convenient manner in terms of timing. So after being at uh, Marea for another couple of years, one of our managers there moved to Pure in the West Village to be the general manager. So that worked out that uh, he thought of me and um, I came on as the wine director. So what was it like following up from Kyle? So Kyle put together a very thoughtful program that was focused on champagne and a lot of older wine. So taking over the program at that time it was wonderful because there there weren't many places in New York that were focused really almost solely on champagne. So he had he had built a, a great list. But, you know, I, I filled in a few sections of classics and also some of my favorites expanding Swiss Italy. Swiss wine. <laughs> Swiss wine, yes. <laughs> um, he definitely did not have any Swiss wine <laughs> when I first started. What about filling in some of those other regions? I mean, here was your chance to be a wine director for the first time where you're buying wine, which you hadn't done before, which is a big deal. For me, growing up in the classics, I really kind of wanted to pay homage to that. And our chef, Chris, he he studied in Italy as well. So there are a ton of Italian influences um, and pasta dishes. So for me, it was important to put on Italian wine and kind of expand that section, but also keep a lot of Burgundy, um, especially white Burgundy, which I love. Who doesn't? And Rhone as well, focusing on those sections and expanding. And I feel like you've built out the special events calendar. Pure is definitely the best restaurant I've ever worked in, in that our owner, Simon Kim, really just kind of gave me the keys. And he said, do whatever you want with the space um, as long as it's beneficial to the company. And we're a very small restaurant. We're 30 seats. But the space is really lovely. So in order to keep Pure fresh and just an exciting place to be, we have thrown a lot of cool events. So last summer, for example, we did every week, late Thursday night, a different theme. One was like an Austrian Oirega party, and one was Bordeaux and Burlesque, and just Pure has been a fun place. I feel like it's a whole different ball of wax to do events like that than just here's 60 covers a night or whatever it is. Starting uh, as the wine director at Piora, You know, it was my first buying position. There was a lot to do, but it's a small place. So really after six months, once I had settled in, you know, I was, you you can get bored. Um, And I'm the kind of person that I need to always be doing something for better or for worse. And so I really concentrated my efforts on expanding the events there, especially in the summer, because it is the West Village uh, and we're slower as many restaurants are. So uh, I never done events or coordinated as such before, but there are so many great people in this industry, uh, both guests, 
as well as sommeliers, buyers, what have you. So I wanted to do something that brought people together and just make it fun. I think that too often, you know, wine events can be just not fun. And uh, so this this was my opportunity, I suppose, to change that. It gave you a chance to kind of explore different regions, but also kind of different costumes, different presentations. <laughs> we had a sake night, and so everyone dressed in kimonos and... Um, but we also had, for example, sake samurais there who were able to explain to guests what types of sake there are. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just from the neighborhood came in. And, you know, I had one uh, one guest that came throughout the entire Summer Thursday party series to all, I think, 12 of them. And he said, you know, this is it's such a silly yet civilized way to spend a Thursday night in the dead of summer in New York. And you don't even notice that you're learning, but I suppose you are. And that's kind of what I like. I think wine should be fun. Yeah, but for someone who thinks that, you're pretty serious about it too. Like a lot of people say that who <laughs> are kind of done with wine, you know? Yeah. But you're saying it at the other, you're kind of beginning with wine in a way when I look at your career. Yeah, I mean, I think it should be fun, but meaningful. It, they're not just for people to get drunk and have a good time, although people certainly do that. But, you know, I want them to get inspired. And I want, you know, if you just show them a bottle of Bordeaux, well, why is that exciting? Well, it's not actually. But if you tell them the story behind it, if you if you wrap the whole party in that theme and that idea, you can transport people to these to these regions or show them a bit of, of, of what it's kind of about. And I guess that's the part. And I think it's coming organically, not cynically. But that's the part for me where what you're doing moves from you're most interested in serving wine to you're most interested in doing wine marketing. Because it seems specifically with you that those two things are very fluid in your career right now. Wine marketing is simply an offshoot of being a sommelier. So when you're at the table with the guest, you're marketing your wine list and finding what they like and finding a way to have a specific wine appeal to them. So you're, you're really marketing every time you're table side and just taking that to a greater scale with social media or or such, um, for me, has been a natural progression. I've done a lot of sommelier interviews, I don't know, somewhere yeah. close to 100, and I don't encounter so many people who phrase it that way. Was it just intuitive for you to be like, yes, this is something we have to market? Or were there certain personalities, maybe in other genres besides wine, that you said, yeah, so that makes sense to me, and we should pursue something like that? Uh, in New York, I went to a lot of really cool parties. You know, I would go to these events, like these underground fun parties where there's acrobats and there's sword swallowers. And, you know, obviously those parties attract a huge crowd and they're cool. And they're, how can you bring that to, to fine dining or to wine? And obviously I have yet to throw an event where there are sword swallowers, but that's actually kind of surprising to me. <laughs> well, who knows if anyone's listening to this and is a sword swallower. I really would love <laughs> to have you at an event soon. Um, you know, but I mean, wine, I think, in these events can get stale. And as a sommelier, I went to a lot of lectures and tastings and events. But as a buyer, especially, you, you get a lot more. And I would go to a few and I would say, well, this was kind of just like the event last week. Why? Why is this inspirational? Why is this exciting? How is this bringing people together? Well, it's not. So how about I do something that is? And so I kind of drew from those parties trying to attract a different clientele altogether. Just the people that want to have fun, but maybe also want to learn a little bit. They don't want to go clubbing. They don't want to just get drunk at dinner. They want to actually do a bit of both. I guess the real question is, and I guess we'll both find out, right? But how much are you going to stay in one place and serve wine? And how much are you going to become like a, a personality who's involved with the wine marketing scene? Um, I guess we'll both find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. You don't have any thoughts about that subject? Well, I think that, I mean, I, I love what I do and I, I love being a sommelier. And I think that if I lost that component in my career, I would be, I would be very sad. Um, so I think I need that not only human interaction, but for me to leave restaurants would be very difficult. I, like I said, I grew up in them and it's always been a home for me, um, when I didn't have one. So 
to, to lose that, I, I don't know if I could. I mean, I guess I'll have to at some point. Uh, there's not a lot of longevity in restaurants, but it's something I don't like to think about. <laughs> well, that's fair. I mean, I think one of the things that you've done to what I would think of as extend your career from being, I don't take this the wrong way, but it was alluded to earlier, like a cute young girl, is you wrote a book. And yeah. So that is one way of being taken seriously, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of, I've always been worried about being taken seriously. I think everyone does to a certain extent. I've always tried to do uh, competitions or um, score the highest in my class and do the typical overachiever things um, <laughs> to kind of be taken seriously. But, you know, when this opportunity to write a book came my way, it was, it seemed too good to be true. But um, no, it was, it was perfect. And how did that happen? I did a lot of freelance writing, and writing is always something I've enjoyed throughout school. So I, uh, whenever I would go on a trip or go to a seminar, I would write about it. And at first, it was just on a blog I started, just to kind of compose my thoughts. And, you know, if, if someone on the Simulini team didn't get to go to the seminar, I could show them the article and they could read about it. So I thought that was a cool way to kind of express myself and, you know, it naturally kind of progressed to writing some small articles here and there for some online magazines. And uh, I wrote a piece in conjunction with New York Magazine about rosé wine uh, last year, May 2016. Um, and it was just a fun article where I would say six of my favorite rosés and describe them. And then they would kind of, you know, put in their two cents. What I thought was interesting about that article is that you could have been either one of those roles. There's one role, which was the authority figure says this about wine, which was you mm -hmm. in that article. And then it was like checking with normal people <laughs> to see what they thought about this wine yeah. that they're tasting without having any real wine background. But I thought that you probably could have done both of those if you wanted. Yeah, I think next time I should pitch that to them. I'd be like, guys, I can just do it all. It's fine. <laughs> um, no, but it's so funny the way it happened because, you know, that article, when they first reached out to me, uh, I said, great. And I wrote them, uh, uh, I wrote quite a bit for it. And they said, you know, actually, we're not going to run it. Um, and then they asked me for samples. And so I had to run down last minute to their offices and find six of these bottles that they could photograph. And it was just so much work for what seemed at the time, like, so little pay back, um, if you will. Welcome to the writing business. <laughs> I know. I was like, it was also unpaid. <laughs> but, you know, I, I try to say, at least I did try to say yes to every single opportunity that came my way. And I figured eventually it would pay off. Seems to have worked out. <laughs> yeah. So by happenstance, a literary agent came across the article and she thought, wow, this is kind of cool. This is a sommelier, but she's young and she's writing about wine in a way that's not pretentious. Um, and especially rosé, obviously, is such a trending topic right now. Um, she should write a book. And so she reached out to me and pitched me the idea. I think the thing about that article was that they were trying for a serious wine hook but that also is relatable, right? They wanted to be relatable. Which is which is difficult to do. Um the, a sommelier is not going to read the same article as your average consumer. But that is what I, that's, that was my goal with the book. Um, when she first pitched the idea to me, uh, Alison Hunter, who uh, is my literary agent, of course the idea was appealing. Who doesn't want to write a book? I mean, everyone who's done writing wants to write a book. But, you know, the topic of rosé, it's challenging. I love rosé and it's delicious. But being a young female sommelier, if I wrote a book on rosé, I would be the young female sommelier that wrote a book on rosé. And I didn't want to back myself into a corner. And um, You could also end up being the young female sommelier who wrote a successful book that sold copies. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> That's the idea. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to the guy who was like, Slovakian, watch my world. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, so the thing that appealed to me so much is I, I told Alison Hunter Listen, I would love to write this book, but I want it. I want it to be meaningful. I don't want it to be silly. And um, you know, I want a sommelier to pick it up, and I want someone who's just shopping in Urban Outfitters to pick it up. So trying to bridge that gap was the most challenging part. But for me, it was very important because I didn't want to write something. To write something silly. How many conversations did you have to go back and forth on that? It was. It was. I think. 
a series of discussions, we'll say, but there was also a very serious timeline. So she came across this article and a few months later pitched me the idea in the summer of 2016. And she really needed an answer right away. So I went home and I talked to my boyfriend, uh, Lyle Railsback, about it. And I said, what do you think? I mean, I'm going to be the girl writing a book on Rosé. Is that going to make me a stereotype? And he said, no, like there's a way to do it. And, and he works, uh, he does national sales for Kermit Lynch. So, you know, Rosé has always been a big part of Kermit Lynch's portfolio. And he said, listen, you know, you love, I mean, we love Alice Waters, Richard Olney, uh, Chez Panisse, like these places that just embody rosé and that are taken very seriously. So there's a way you can do it that celebrates rosé and not belittles it. That pitch of it is what I like so much about the book. Like, yeah. uh, it's very possible that someone would present me a rosé book that I would not be interested in and that I would not want to do an interview around. That's a very strong possibility. However, when I saw your book, which it actually took me a while to pick up, like it, you sent it to me and then I spent some time before I actually looked at it, kind of thinking that probably wasn't going to work out. I really liked it. I thought it was charming, you know, appealing to the intellectual sense of it. And you can learn some things, but then also it's visually charming and it weaves that, that atmosphere, both the sheer beauty and ease of the Provence Mediterranean lifestyle, but also you know, a sense of history. It is very charming and whimsical and, and, uh, that's the idea. It's supposed to transport you in a certain way. And a large portion of the book as well is recipes. Because I think that for a sommelier, I mean, what you do is wine, but you also, you know, you pair it with food. So to me, it was silly to talk about rosé and not food in the same sentence. So, you know, whether that is radishes and butter or anchovy toast from Alice Waters or, you know, Lulu Payroad's bouillabaisse, I think these things should not or cannot be separated from the topic of rosé. I mean, I feel like often they are. I see some rosé marketed, maybe about lifestyle, about yachts, about cheap wine <laughs> that's presented in a, a rich lifestyle fashion, about industrial-made things that are pumped out in the millions. You know, I think that that's the natural progression um, or the evolution of rosé. You know, it started in Provence, and that's kind of the birthplace of it for the most part. I mean, maybe. Maybe it started with the Romans. Maybe, yeah. That's You'll have to read the book. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but, you know, and then so as people flocked to the south of France because they had money, and then that rosé naturally became associated with that. But the whole point of the book is to celebrate the roots of rosé. And for me, what, what I fell in love with is that uh, really humble expression of the Provencal lifestyle. You know, reading books like by Richard Olney, for example, and Adventures on the Wine Route from Kermit Lynch, you know, these are the kind of people that I want to celebrate. And for me, those are the people that matter in the world of rosé. So I wanted to expose people to that and have them fall in love with the history and the people and not, you know, shitty bathtub rosé that is at clubs and parties and maybe in the Hamptons. You know, rosé is a wine just like white and red, and, and it should be meaningful. So who did you reach out to when you were strategizing your book? I reached out to anyone that would really take uh, my calls or emails. But, you know, the short list at first was people, people to me that were, were heroes. Like I mentioned, Kermit Lynch, Alice Waters, Jacques Pepin, Daniel Boulud, and then also as well, sommeliers within New York and winemakers such as Jeremy Sess or Raj Parr, people that were around when rosé wasn't really, you know, you couldn't really make rosé um, and market it successfully to serious wine drinkers. And, you know, speaking to these winemakers from around France too, like Daniel Ravier of Domaine Tampier and Rodolphe Ruffaut from J.M. Ruffaut and Chinon, and talking to them about the development of it in general. So did you see some common ground? Uh, a lot of common ground, but also a lot of people that didn't necessarily agree. So. You know, for example, Kermit Lynch is a big proponent of uh, malolactic fermentation in rosé. And he thinks it's very Im important because it, it makes rosé almost like white burgundy. It makes it creamier, more of a serious wine, if you will. And I think he's right in many ways. But then I would talk to, for example, Daniel Ravier of Domaine Tampier. And although he thinks that's ideal in rosé, with global warming now... The same thing that Valentini said in Abruzzo in Italy, we can't do that anymore. 
you know, there's not enough acidity in the wine. So I found that there were a lot of people held ideologies about rosé and their perception of it or where they wanted it to be. And other people thought differently. Did you find it to be a terroir-influenced wine? Yes. Too often people don't think of rosé as a terroir-influenced wine. But rosé from Chinon tastes different than rosé from Bandol, and that tastes different than rosé from Corsica or from Friuli. So once people start thinking about it in those terms, you know, it does hold a sense of place. And I think that'll pull people away from the pink bathwater that's being just pumped out by the millions of gallons all over the world, actually. Obviously, the Provence side really played a strong part of the book. But as you just alluded to, there's rosé all around the world. Did you gravitate towards other areas as well? You know, the cool thing about the New World, as it is with many styles of winemaking, is that you can kind of do whatever you want. There are no rules. And in California, for example, people are making Solera-style rosé or... um, aging Pinot Noir rosé on Chardonnay leaves. And they're doing these fun experimental things that in the old world you just don't see. So I think it's interesting to see this development of experimentation. You know, it's interesting because with the south of France, I feel like there's a built-in market for rosé. People search it out. But in the new world, I feel like it's the opposite. Like people think, okay, well, Napa is known (laughs) for Cabernet. I'm not really looking for a rosé from Napa. Yeah, I mean... When I was in Chile last year, I was talking to a producer there and I said, well, why don't you make rosé here? It's a cool climate. It would be delicious. Why not make some rosé from your Pinot Noir? And he goes, are you kidding me? I would never make rosé here. I mean, Chilean men are like, they're men. They would never drink rosé. And I'm like, okay, I guess you're not going to make rosé then. <laughs> so it's still, I think in many countries, thought of as a silly drink that you know women in bikinis drink on the beach. It is interesting to me because you're probably the first generation that really can't recall white zin as a thing, unless you saw it maybe during your restaurant row time. Well, my first sip of wine was white Zinfandel. Hey, it all came around then, <laughs> It huh? all came around. My grandmother, so my dad's mother that raised me for a bit, she would just buy those large boxed white Zinfandel and keep it in the fridge. And then around the late afternoon dinner time would just pour it over a huge glass of ice and just kind of sip it. She would just sit on the porch or on the front steps and read romance novels. Um, And so my job was to, every time she was almost empty, to refill it for her. And there were many occasions where I would kind of sneak a little sip here and there just to see what all the fuss was about. And if you're a kid, white cinnamon is delicious, just like grape juice. It's uh, funny how much your relationship with this person, your grandmother, has actually had wider waves in the pond later in your life. Early on in your life, there's, there are these people that are important to you, and you don't realize how important they are until, until it's probably too late. That's an interesting way to put it when you're writing a book about Lulu Payroll. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, when you meet someone like that, I we all have mentors or people we think are celebrities that, you know, you're so excited to meet them. And I was on uh, the Kermit Lynch wine trip throughout France, and it was a three-week trip. So the last day of the trip was at Domaine Tampier. So for the three weeks prior to this, we're traveling all around France, and I'm just, you know, counting the days until I can meet Lulu because I've read all of her cookbooks and heard so much about her from Alice Waters and Richard Olney and Kermit Lynch. So In my head, almost, she was this figure that was, you know, just too good to be true. She seemed so wonderful. So it got to the last day of the trip, and we went to Domaine Tampier and met with Daniel Ravier, the winemaker there, and tasted through the wines. And Lulu, we couldn't find her anywhere. I was like, I guess she's not coming out. I didn't want to ask and be rude. And then we left Domaine Tampier. I was like, man, one of the whole reasons I came on this trip was to meet her. And um, we had lunch at a neighboring winery called Gros Noray. And in the middle of lunch, uh, Lupe Road came in. And she came over just to say hello. She had woken up from her, from her nap. And uh, at 99 years old, still wanted her two glasses of red wine at lunch, of course. So she stopped in to see everyone and say hello. And it it's, uh, I mean, I was even more nervous than I thought. And definitely you're so excited to see her. You're like, you're holding back tears. It's um, a very cool experience. And she's just this awesome woman that 
is always happy and so positive. She's 99 years old, but I mean, she is spry and it's like she's a teenager. Um, she was telling us the story of how last year she was by herself in the house and fell down and couldn't get up and, and broke her arm. And so all night she's by herself and probably in enormous amount of pain. But she said, it wasn't a big deal. I have 99 years of, of jokes to tell myself. And so she distracted herself the whole night by just telling herself dirty jokes, which is, I mean, just awesome. And her daughter was there as well. And she was telling us, yes, my mother has always been this way. She's an optimist. She's a great cook. She's created this, you know, you see her kitchen. She's created this lifestyle of Provence. And I think she's really, you know, the godmother of it in many ways. And for me, that was really inspirational just to kind of justify my love for Provence and the lifestyle and uh, Rosé in general, that um, it's it doesn't have to be flashy or filled with yachts. It can be as simple as a family like the Tampiers and, you know, a woman like Lulu Road. And to me, that's what Rosé is about, just something as easy as a small family in the south of Provence. That's a pretty amazing connection to come out of your research for the book. Were there others that really struck you, relationships that really started with the book? Jacques Bavon was one of the first interviews I did early on for the book. And um, I was very surprised that he took uh, my phone call. And because of that, as a result, I was able to get other people um, like Daniel Belude. So it's kind of a nice uh, domino effect. But so it was the first week that I was really starting to work on the manuscript and... Uh, I had a phone call with Jacques Papin, and I'd met him earlier that year because I had worked an event that was his birthday dinner, but of course did not expect him to remember me out of the 30 sommeliers that were there. Um, but he did, he did, or at least he said he did anyway. Um, and, you know, it was so nice that he took my phone call and we chatted on the phone for hours. And the way he approached Rosé was not, it was not a lifestyle for him. It was just a beverage. And it made sense. And, you know, even when we were talking on the phone, he was going through his fridge and telling me what labels he had in his fridge at the moment and what he was drinking and telling stories of when he was growing up in France. Yeah, I mean, the rosé was what the kids drank. You know, you could pour a little bit in water and dilute it. And, you know, he really grew up drinking rosé and offering a perspective that is not seen in the United States. So that was a really wonderful connection to make so early on in the manuscript. And I think it really did shape a lot of the stylistic choices in the book. And I feel like the illustrations are a big part of the book. Yeah. I mean, the illustrations make the book. When I first was writing the book proposal with my literary agent, uh, she asked if I knew anyone who could throw together some quick illustrations just to kind of present it to different publishers to give them an idea of what the book would look like, because so much of the book is the appearance. And so I said, well, yeah, I'm actually dating and not an illustrator, but he has an art degree that he's never really used and he's done some wine labels. And she said, that's fine. That's great. It's just the book proposal. Whatever will we'll be fine. So Lyle put together some really cool illustrations for the book proposal and really, really charming and fun and whimsical. And they loved them so much. They were like, can we hire him as an illustrator? And uh, they did. And what was it like working with your boyfriend who you'd recently moved in with during this period? Yeah, it was, uh, it's definitely, it was a lot to thrust onto a new relationship, especially we had just moved in together into my very humble, small apartment in Inwood. And, you know, we still had things to unpack, but yet we were given this project that the manuscript, as well as the hundred illustrations was doing a month. And of course, from there, we did different edits that took a few months as well. But within one month to do 100 illustrations is, even if you're an illustrator, is near impossible, especially to make them good. And Lyle has a more than a full-time job doing national sales for Kermit Lynch within the month of November, which November 2016 is when we were working on this book. He traveled to, I think, four to five different states. So he was always on the road and you know, he packed his pens with him and his watercolors and would do some doodles and illustrations on airplanes or uh, in the airport or in hotels. Um, but he's very different than me in the sense that when I get a project, I'm very excited to have it and to get it done right away. I love checking things off. So the manuscript, at least the rough draft, 
I had done within the first two weeks. I'd written over 25,000 words. And then from there, you know, I was comfortable that I had it finished. And of course, I could edit it and add in quotes and keep plugging in things. But the structure was there. Whereas Lyle kind of, he performs best under pressure. So the majority of the illustrations were done, you know, within the last week and a half, which, of course, for someone who's so type A like me, that was incredibly frustrating because, you know, my name was on the book as well as his. And so I really wanted, uh, I, I was hoping that it would all work out. And it did, of course, but there were for sure a lot of sleepless nights. And uh, I think that after going through that and writing a book in a month and him illustrating a book in a month completely by ourselves, that really uh, brought us together. I mean, if you can go through that. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, writing a popular song and writing the lyrics before the music. The um, illustrations are a big part of the feel for the book. Yeah, and I think we were both very nervous because he had never had a, a job like this before. And, you know, he had to send in illustrations and get them approved. And the editors would say, okay, well, can you do it? But a little bit like this. And um, so you would have to keep changing them, which, you know, when you set an edits for me of a book, it's easy. You can take out sentences. You might have to rethink how you're going to structure it, but you don't have to start all you don't have to start from scratch again and do a whole new painting or drawing. So, you know, he was, I mean, it was amazing that he was able to do so much in so little time without sacrificing quality. I mean, the illustrations are really beautiful. But there's a, a level that kind of matches the topic and that they're not super high finish. Right. You know, like it matches the idea of rosé. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're charming in their whimsical illustrations, but it's not like the Mona Lisa. They're not super thought out. They're just fun. I mean, the book is supposed to be, it's supposed to be fun. So I think that the illustrations very much made it so. I think it would be hard as a new couple to do a book together. You know, I could see a couple that's been dating for five, six years doing a book together. But I think as a new couple, that, that's a whole other thing. I think actually that's why it worked. We were so new into dating and, you know, Lyle, I think quickly on learned that I am a bit intense in some ways. And so when I said we have, I have a month to write a book and you have a month to do a hundred illustrations, if you would like the job, I think he liked the challenge. And I think that's why we learned that we work together so well, because he also takes a lot on his plate. And I think Although we operate differently, we both like the same things um, and we like to be busy. So I think it, it kind of forced us to be a lot closer, a lot quicker, which worked out well. Because sometimes in a restaurant business, it's hard to find meaningful relationships that can work. Uh, a lot of times just because of schedule. Right. I mean, our schedules are both pretty insane. I mean, I'm in the restaurant every night and he travels to two or three different states or, or countries within the month, if not more. So, you know, we actually have to schedule time together. You know, it's, it's something that if it's important to you, you really have to put in the calendar. So even breakfast together, we have to schedule because we're not sure if we are going to be there. You know, with the book too, it kind of made sense. Like we had to schedule it in order to make it work. So what do you want to do at this point? You know, at this point in my career, I'm still 26. Uh, so I have a lot more time in the restaurant and that's where I really want to focus my attention. But I also want to want to explore writing more. And, um, you know, they say that when you write your first book, you're hooked and you want to keep writing more. And uh, that's definitely true. And I feel like it's a book that can go beyond the wine geek niche. Like I could see regular people picking it up. Well, that's definitely the idea. I mean, the book is going to be in places where not just wine drinkers go. Of course, it'll be in like Barnes and Noble, but it's also going to be in like Urban Outfitters, you know, because I want just the everyday person to, to learn about rosé. I don't want it to be a new sommelier trend where it's just like, oh, wow, let's just drink rosé because we're cool and we're young sommeliers. And it shouldn't be a trend. It should be a style of wine just like white and red and i think you have to try you have to sell that to the general public not just not just sommeliers and, and make it geeky are there things that disappoint you about the rosé category or are there things that you discovered that were a big surprise about the rosé category that you weren't aware of before you know i was i knew of course that there were there was a ton of shitty rosé out there um but i was 
very disappointed to see how much that category is growing um, and how much that's expanding. And I, well, I know, of course, there's always going to be bad wine. But I think taking advantage of this rosé craze and just, you know, producing shit and slapping a label on it that says rosé is really unfair to the category. And so it was really disheartening to see how much it's expanded and how quickly. And hopefully this combats it a bit. Do you think it says anything about the culture generally that dry rosé has become such a market phenomenon? I think after the white Zinfandel and the, and the sweet, sticky rosés of the 90s, the, the pendulum has swung the other way and people want these dry, refreshing styles. I think it's saying that Americans at least, or maybe uh, everyone's palates hopefully are changing for the better and they're kind of maturing a bit and they tend towards drier, fresher styles that show a bit of terroir as well. And what do you predict is going to happen with rosé going forward? You know, I've noticed recently that guests of mine will come in asking specifically for Chinon rosé or for Sancerre rosé and not just asking for a glass of rosé, which 10 years ago, they would just ask for rosé. I think the trend will be towards seeking out more terroir-driven expressions uh, of rosé. So looking back, what have been the moments you're most proud of in your own career? Were I guess the times where I was scared, but did it anyway, um, because that was those were not the easiest times, or the times where maybe I stuck out like a sore thumb, you know, being the young girl in the room, but not letting it get to me. Um, I think just overall, um, the times where I tried really hard and and it paid off. Victoria James has overcome fears to be a successful sommelier <laughs> and author. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Victoria James of Drink Pink, a celebration of rosé, and also the wine director at Peora in the West Village of New York. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe, on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.